Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Join Josh and Chuck, the guys who bring you Stuff You Should Know, as they take a trip around the world to help you get smarter in a topsy-turvy economy. Check out the all-new super-stuffed guide to the economy from HowStuffWorks.com, available now exclusively on iTunes. Hello and welcome to our podcast. We call it Stuff You Should Know with your hosts Josh Clark and Charles W. Bryant. I'm Josh Clark. <laughs> we were told to call it Stuff You Should Know. Yeah. What did you think about that opening? That uh, was good. I, I still have to keep trying, huh? Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll try it next time. A hundred plus episodes in, we're still working out the first 20 seconds. Still working out the kinks, oh, yeah. Okay. And no, it's just not not just the first 20 seconds, Chuck. You're right. I it's mean, from beginning to end, it's herky and jerky, the whole shebang. It's a, it's evolving, Josh. So, Chuck, I'll tell you who wasn't evolving for about 17 hours back in May of 2008. You want to hear about uh, a woman named Val Thomas? Yes, and that was awesome, by the way, that set up. Oh, thank you. Very good. Uh, Val uh, was a 59-year-old. Uh, West Virginia woman, and in May of 2008, she died. Died. Okay. 17 hours. No brain activity. Her heart was stopped. Um, they had her on a ventilator, even during this time. She was dead. Okay. Um, and worst of all, rigor mortis set in, right? Right, which is a surefire sign, I would think, that you're dead. Yeah, because it's not even like part of the process of death. It's right. you've been dead for several hours now, and here's this new process right. that happens to a corpse. The weird thing is, I mean, this is not it wouldn't necessarily be significant under any other circumstances but this, because we all go through rigor mortis. Sure. Um, but Val Thomas woke up. She came back. You're kidding. I am not kidding. After after rigor mortis set in and everything, she was dead for 17 hours. She woke up, started talking. And she popped a breath mint and cracked her knuckles, I suppose. Yeah, and I was wondering, what would it feel like, you know? What would your muscles feel like after after rigor mortis set in? I can't imagine it'd feel very good. Yeah. You'd probably feel really sore, right? Yeah, I would imagine so. Because, I mean, what is rigor mortis except for, like, a contraction of the muscles, right? Well, is it? It is, Chuck. Let's talk about <laughs> rigor mortis today. You want to? And that's the rigor mortis setup. There you have it. Very nice. Chuck and I have uh, had fun all afternoon sending each other gross pictures of uh, corpses w- in rigor mortis. Of stiffs. Stiffs, exactly. That's where the term comes from. Absolutely. Have you ever heard of that book, Stiff, by Mary Roach? I think so. Is that the pictures of dead people? No, no. No, no, no. Um, it's, a, it's a book about what happens to the body afterwards oh. and basically what it's like to be a cadaver, all the uses for cadavers. I was I haven't read it. I was reading the introduction today. And I was also listening to the thrash metal band Rigor Mortis. I saw them too. Yeah, were you listening to them? Uh, I wasn't, but I was surprised they were able to get the domain name. It seems, I don't know, like some sort of mortuary would have They've been around for a while. They released their debut album in 1988. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so, wow. I mean, they were probably on top of it back in the 90s. Sounds like it. But I was listening to them on Last FM, and I was like, Rigor Mortis isn't as good as I remembered. So I went over to the uh, Children of Bodom channel, and they were all right. <laughs> you ever heard of them? No. They're pretty serious. You should check them out. I will. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I was prepping for this podcast, reading Stiff, and... Um, uh, Ms. Roach mentions that uh, she was talking about all the ways cadavers have been used to help, you know, further humanity. Right. And one of them was um, there was this French scientist back in the late 19th century who was trying to find out whether or not the Shroud of Turin was real or not. Okay. And he actually got his hands on cadavers 
And he was the first one to establish that Christ could not have been crucified through his palms. Mm-hmm. Because this guy determined that that would only hold about a 90-pound man or body right. to a crucifix. And the, you know how he found out? Well, By he, nailing cadavers <laughs> yeah. to a crucifix. So what, it was through the wrist? Is through that the wrist, yeah. Apparently there's like some joint. I can't remember what it's called. But um, with, I think the place where you're, what, tibia and fibula? Oh, I hope that's right. I don't want viewer ma- or listener mail. Is it tibia and fibula? I, I, I doubt it. What was, humorous? Humorous and... Ah, um, well, anyway, we can't put it in there. Well, anyway, I am, I, I assume going to get some listener mail for that one. But the two bones where they come together at your wrist, uh-huh. um, to connect to your metatarsal or metacarpal, metacarpal, because it's carpal tunnel syndrome. Anyway, um, there is a uh, hole there that you could drive a stake through and it will hold up a substantial adult sized male. Interesting. But this guy, this French physician figured it out by nailing cadavers to a cross. And I guess the other option was that, uh, Jesus was a 90 pound weakling, which doesn't seem likely to me. I don't know. I can't imagine they were all that well nourished back then. Yeah, but 90 pounds. Come on. 90, yeah, that is kind of tiny. It's slight. Sure. So cadavers. Yes. Rigor mortis. Yes, uh, rigor mortis, Josh. Uh, what does it mean in Latin? Well, Josh, it's not so important what it stands for in Latin because we know Latin is a dead language. <laughs> Latin is suffering from rigor mortis. Uh, what is important is how it works because that's what we're here to educate folks on. You want to talk about that or you want me to? Uh, well, well, we'll both get into it. Okay. I thought one thing that was interesting is that uh, th- three hours or so after a human or animal dies, mm-hmm. it starts to happen, and then it happens from head to toe. Yeah. Which I thought was pretty interesting. Whose law is that? Uh, that would be... Nystin's law? Yeah, Nystin. And he but discovered this Frenchman. way back in 1812. And the, he, he, the reason why it's, it starts from head to toe, basically, they think is because um, you have smaller, um, more delicate muscle tissue right. around the face... So usually it's the eyes uh-huh. and the mouth um, that require very delicate, precise movements that uh, rigor up first. Right, which is why every movie in history, every death scene with the guy's eyes wide open, a friend will come by and gently shut them. Maybe put a couple of half dollars over them. Oh, yeah, if it was a Western. Sure. Nice. So, um, okay, so rigor mortis, Chuck, is nothing but the stiffening of the muscles, right? Yeah. Um Okay, let's talk physiology here for a second, buddy. Okay. So we have two different kinds of muscle fibers, right? We've got skeletal muscle, skeletal muscles, and we have um, smooth muscle tissue. Right. Smooth muscle tissue is like your heart. It's what your heart's made out right. of. Right. This is microscopic, dude. <clears throat> sure, it mm-hmm. is. And then when you bundle them together, you have you know a, a, a muscle, what we see is a muscle, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but, yeah, they're all made up of individual fibers. Um, and all of these are connected or are commanded by neurons, right? Yes. So you have um, motor neurons that command skeletal muscles. Mm-hmm. And you have fast twitch muscles, which are the ones that, that require precise movement. So your fast twitch neurons are the ones controlling like your eye movement, your tongue, that kind of thing. Right. And then you have kind of the big oafish neurons of, right. of, of the physiology world. And those are slow twitch neurons. Right. That was a good... Uh, oaf imitation, by the way. Thank you very much. Very lumbering. We need to go video, Chuck. We will. Too. Yeah, okay. Um, so anyway, when when uh, the brain says, "Hey, man, raise your left arm," 
it, it transmits a, an electrical impulse to the neuron, which says, oh, okay, we got to get this going. Mm-hmm. What happens is <clears throat> when, when this transmission takes place, um, there's a biochemical process that happens. You've got these calcium ions, right? Right. And they exist outside of the cell, but they like to go into the cell whenever they get a chance, sure. right? So they'll go into the cells that make up our muscle tissue, and they kind of throw everything off balance. What what they allow to happen is that these two proteins to connect. And we have two different kinds of skeletal muscle fibers. I know what they're called. Let's hear it. Uh, myosin and actin. Okay, and myosin makes up thick filament fibers, right? right? And then actin makes up thin filament fibers. And when you connect the two, when myosin and actin connect to one another, they're molecules, right? Yep. Um, then you have a contraction. So calcium ions allow myosin and actin to connect, which makes your muscle contract. So to get a muscle to relax, you have to uncouple myosin and actin. Mm-hmm. And through, um, through oxygen, through aerobic, uh, an aerobic process, we, when we breathe in oxygen, some of it goes to produce this stuff called adenosine triphosphate. Okay? ATP? ATP. Sure. And that stuff actually decouples myosin and actin, causing the muscles to relax. Yep. When we're dead, though, we mm, have no two problems. Well, yeah. Number one, we're not breathing anymore, so there's no oxygen, mm-hmm. which means we're not producing ATP any longer. But secondly... The apparently the, those calcium ions, their natural state is trying to get into the cell. Right. So there's a, a buildup of calcium ions, which means your muscles all start to contract. Mm-hmm. Hence rigor mortis. There you have it. That's it, Doctor Clark. Thank you. That is not it, though, Josh. Oh, it's not. Okay. <laughs> no. I stand corrected. Well, what's important about rigor mortis is what we should talk about next, and we know how it happens and. You can become stiff, and it's uh, it's you know funny to play with a stiff dead body. Sure. We all know that. Put them in like <laughs> silly positions. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a good time. Uh, but it can actually be used at things like uh, crime scenes. Oh, it can. Yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Do we need to talk about that? Well, yeah. Well, how about this? You said that it sets in after three hours. Yes. Well, not always. How, well, okay. About how long does it last? Uh, well, it lasts up to uh, eighteen hours, twelve to eighteen hours. Okay. And then it fades away again. I've heard up to 36, 72. Just doing side research on this, it sure. seems like nobody can say definitively how long it lasts. Well, and it depends on a lot of things. Okay, well, what, what do they depend on? Uh, well, temperature is one obvious thing. Temperature, Josh, is one thing. Right. It's pretty obvious. Uh, if it's warmer, it'll speed up rigor mortis, and it'll also go uh, at, a, at a slower pace. Or, I'm sorry, faster pace. Right, so it, it, it sets in faster, but it lasts a shorter amount of time, right? Right, because basically it creates a good environment for bacteria uh, for the decay process, which starts after rigor mortis. Right, and ultimately that's what gets rid of rigor mortis, yes. right? This process called autolysis, mm-hmm. and that is basically where the cells kill themselves. Yeah. Uh, the enzymes in cells basically break down the, the cellular structure. Mm-hmm. And this is the, the case for the cells that make up muscle tissue, right? Right. So then as these cells decompose, the muscles can no longer hold an erection. Mm-hmm. And you're no longer um, in a state of rigor mortis. Very nice, Josh. Thank you. I'm proud of you. Thanks. Uh, when it's cold, on the other flip side of the coin, uh, it'll slow the process down. So if you die outside in the freezing cold, like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Yeah, I love that. He was a stiff. He probably wasn't just frozen in that scene. He probably had rigor mortis. 
Uh, probably, yeah. And it was frozen at the same and time. And it would have lasted a long time. I've heard, I've heard that it can last up to like 28 days under yeah. the right conditions. Yep, if you're freezing out there, for sure. Uh, so physical exertion just prior to death, that's another thing that can affect Yeah, it. because your muscles are already contracted. Exactly. Or so, if you're drowning or something, right. you're already um, you're, you're already starved of oxygen, so you're not producing ATP anyway. So it can set there it immediately, have. right? Mm-hmm. Which is called a cadaveric spasm, right? Mm-hmm. I actually saw a beaver undergo a cadaveric spasm once. Really? Yeah, when I was in Tennessee, I saw a beaver get hit by a car and it went, Ugh! and um, just immediately died because like, the next day I was driving down the same stretch of road and the beaver was in the same position making the same face that it was the moment it died. Interesting. It was crazy. I saw something undergo a cadaveric spasm. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if police are investigating a crime scene and someone is still... Uh, you know, like got their finch clenched uh, around their purse or something, mm-hmm. That then that means they might have died while uh, in a struggle against an attacker. Sure. So that can that can help out the cops. Uh, and then fat distribution is another one. Uh, fat is an insulator, as we both know, because mm-hmm. we're very warm guys. So what would that mean? Would, I, would, I, would you and I undergo rigor mortis more quickly or less quickly? Uh, more slowly. Okay. If you more fat. Huh. And then age is another thing. Uh, if you have low muscle mass, like if you're a little kid, if you're really old, um, or I guess I should say elderly. It's a little more sure. sensitive way to say it. Right. Uh, Either or way, they're going to undergo sure. rigor mortis. Too. Uh, that'll happen a lot faster, too. So huh. those are some things that can affect the, the speed of the onset and the pace. But because of that, all those different um, uh, circumstances surrounding rigor mortis and prolonging it or you know shortening it, it's not quite that precise, right? So there's a bunch of other stuff that, that forensic uh, crime scene investigators use or prefer to use over rigor mortis to establish time of death, correct? Yeah, and it's not just time of death, too. You can also tell if a body has been moved post-mortem, mm-hmm. which is uh, usually a big uh, clue toward finding out kind of if there was foul play, probably. Or if there were teenagers around afterward. Yeah, I guess so, playing yeah. with the body. Uh, were you talking about liver mortis? Well, that's one thing, yeah. That's a good one. I like that one. Yeah, liver mortis is when um, uh, all the blood cells, basically, and all the blood go to the place where it's lowest. Mm-hmm. So, so like if you're lying on your back, the blood's going to pool in your back. Or if you're, if you're on your side and your face is face down on the concrete, your face is going to be flush with blood. Exactly. It's pretty gross. Also known as lividity. Exactly. And there's another one, too, right? Uh, there is. You're talking about algor... Al Gore Mortis? Al Gore Mortis? Uh, yeah, right. That's a good one. It has that's to a- do with PowerPoint presentations. Right. <laughs> um, actually, that's just the cooling off of the body until it uh, matches the room temperature. Right. And that happens at a predictable rate, too, right? It's like uh, one and a half to two degrees Fahrenheit per hour. Yeah. So, um, so that's a pretty good way of calculating time of death, usually. Absolutely. Unless the person had a fever. True. Yeah, because you're generally assuming that the uh, that the the person's starting out at 98.6, and right. I mean, if they were sick and had a fever, that's going to set it off by a couple of hours. Right. I think the official body temperature changed, though, didn't it? Did it? I'm pretty sure I read that a few years ago. It changed by a 0.01 degree or something. Oh, okay. I'll have I have to look not into heard that. that. And we will determine this and follow up on that. Sounds good, Chuck. <laughs> uh, another thing the cops can do is uh, look at the contents of your stomach, just like they did in Jaws. Yeah. When they cut the shark open. Uh, or in um, Seven. Oh, did they do that in Seven? The gluttony guy, yeah. Oh, right. Oof. Gnarly. Uh, and that can, obviously, you can see how much your food is digested, the last thing you ate, and that can gauge you know, how long you've been dead. And then my favorite. 
Insect activity. Insects, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think as we all know, uh, dead things uh, tend to attract flies and mm-hmm. other insects. And that is because they are feeding on your fluids. Yeah. They're not just there because of the smell. And boy, this is interesting. They're feeding on your fluids, Josh. Well, what's fascinating is, is somebody who's clever enough to figure out, hey, we know so much about, like, in, in the U.S., the blue bottle fly mm-hmm. and every stage of its development. And it develops so quickly. Right. And its its lifespan happens over such a short period of time. We can walk up and say, "Oh, th- there's maggots, and they're blue bottle fly maggots." So we know that this body's only X number of hours dead, right? Um, or if they've hit the hit the pupa stage or the adult stage, you know, um, we can use these stages of these flies and maggots burrowing around in somebody's dead corpse. To determine how long ago they died. That fascinates me. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah, I think we should talk about body farms sometime soon. I think we should do a podcast on body farms. We should. And then forensic pathology period. I know John uh, Fuller wrote a good article on that. Let's do it. We'll do a whole suite of just, just, you know, corpse stuff. Sure. Sweet. Sounds good. All right. So, Chuck, I think with that promise, we've pretty much reached the end of rigor mortis, right? Well, let's hope not. Uh, Autolysis is starting to set in. We're starting to decompose. I'm a little gamey, I can tell you that. I can agree with that. So does that mean that it's uh, listener mail time? I believe so. Let's do listener mail then. And I think all of you friends out there listening should make note, we plugged nothing today. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Our producer Jerry just gave us the (laughs) thumbs up, baby. In fact, we refuse to plug anything because we don't want you to read our blog or to buy our spoken word album. It's reverse psychology. We refuse to plug. Very nice. The anti-plug. So it's listener mail time. It is. So, Josh, this comes to us from David in Atlanta right here. Hey, I know Atlanta. And uh, David is commenting on our Ponzi uh, podcast. Wait, wait. Wait, Chuck. You can't just say it like that. I don't know what you're talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Okay. Uh, Wait, Chuck, we're not proceeding until you say it correctly. Just let me read. Okay. Um, This is from David. I was listening to your podcast about the Ponzi scheme. Happy? Yes. And it reminded me of a company, quote-unquote, that I did some work for a few years back in Atlanta. Uh, He names a company, but I won't name it. Uh, They were running a real estate-based Ponzi scheme, and they hired his company to come in and work on their computers, uh, like an IT deal. Mm-hmm. And he said he knew something fishy was going on. He saw a few red flags in just a couple of days that he was there. Uh, there was a high level of security for a small company. The owner of the company had a personal bodyguard, and there were several security guards in the little tiny office. Uh, second, the pitch that the sales staff were giving uh, promised typical Ponzi, Ponzi scheme <laughs> results, uh, high return, that kind of thing. And this is, to me, the, the big red flag, is he said that they would not let anyone from Georgia invest in their company. Really? They're based out of Atlanta, and they wouldn't let anyone in Georgia invest in their company. Huh. So he suspected this was a big cover-up and a big scheme. And it turns out that it was. Uh, it only lasted about a month, and he heard that they uh, had been operating before that, though, clearly, because they built people out of about 70 million bucks. Holy cow. And his company did not even get paid, and uh, that's even David's story. Wow. Well, thanks a lot, David. First-hand account. I hope, uh, hope uh, things have come around again since then for your company. Um, if you have any fascinating stories about Ponzi schemes or pyramid schemes or any kind of scheme whatsoever, or you just want to say what up to Chuck and I, Chuck and me, uh, you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Should Know blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?